Heavenly Father, we thank you that ultimately Jesus is the solution. He's the answer to life's greatest questions. And so today, Lord, we look to you as we open your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I heard a funny thing this week about how you know who's preaching without looking at us. I know he always makes stories about being the ball guy, but someone said, I know who's preaching by whether there's stuff on the front and the back of the notes. So um, I thought that might be kind of accurate, actually. So yeah, there's stuff on the front and the back this morning. Hey, it's, uh, it's Labor Day weekend, and um, my grandson is with us. I've been a bit distracted, but it reminded me of this story that fits so well as we look at the last two parts of our SHAPE series. We've been looking at how God has uh, gifted us, and I'll, I'll review the S-H-A-P-E in just a second, but we want to plug in the last two, our personality and our experiences, as we look at this together. But it reminds me of this story, a little girl sitting on her grandfather's lap as he read her a bedtime story. And from time to time, she would take her eyes off of Grandpa and, and off the book and reach up to tuck, touch his wrinkled face. She would look at her own cheek, then look at Grandpa's, and then finally she, she could tell she was thinking about something. And she kind of looked up at Grandpa and said, Grandpa, did God make you? Well, yes, sweetheart, he answered. God made me a long, long time ago. She paused Grandpa, did God make me too? Well, of course, honey. God made you just, just a little while ago. And then she feels his cheek, and then she feels her cheek, and then she makes this observation. God's getting better at it, isn't he? <laughs> you know, from the eyes of a child, you know, life is simple. And I wish that ministry and life and church was just simple, but sometimes it's a little complicated. And especially as we're trying to find where we fit in God's body, this is, we're trying to take something that can be very complex and make it very, very simple. So reviewing with me, without looking at that screen, and then we'll see if you get them right, we're spelling out the acrostic S-H-A-P-E. So S stands for what? Spiritual gifts, and so that's discovering your God-given ministry. These are the special set of abilities that are given to Christians, and that God's given you to share with His love and His and service of others. And you're asking the question, "What am I gifted for?" All right, what am I gifted for? Then H stands for what? Heart, and that's describing your, your true passion. These are the passions God's given you so that you can glorify Him. And the question is, what do I love to do? Now. Obviously, when you have some gifting and heart, then hopefully you have the third piece, which is called what? Abilities. And that's discovering what you're naturally gifted at. These are those talents that God's given you when you were born. Uh, he wants you to use them to make an impact. And the question you should be asking is, what natural talents and skills do I have? Now, when your heart and your passion and your abilities line up, you're usually right in sync with one another. And we're going to look at how the next two fit that. But in just looking at your own life, your spiritual gifts, your heart, and your abilities, you say, okay, that's part of it, and it's like three-fifths of it. But here are the next two, and we'll look at those together today. Personality is the fourth part of your shape. 
discovering who God made you to be, and just kind of that special way God's wired you to navigate and fulfill kind of your unique kingdom purpose. And the question you're asking is, where does my personality best suit me to serve, right? And then lastly, we'll look at experiences today, discovering where you've been, those parts of your past, present, and, f- and future uh, that you're looking like, h- how did the past and the present affect how I'll, I'll operate in the future? And what are those life experiences that have prepared me for ministry? Now, ideally, we could just do something on personality and experiences, but we're going to do both of those today, so it's kind of like two parts to the same message. So let's look at personality. Your personality affects how two things happen, and I'll look at those together, and we'll look at how different people are wired. Now, I wanted to say this. Rick Warren says, like stained glass, our different personalities reflect God's light in many colors and patterns. Now, all of us have different personalities, and um, I wish I could just give us one of my favorite personality tests is that lion, otter, beaver, golden retriever. It's easy because the words kind of describe what they are. So if you've never even taken the test, but it sounds like you are that person, if you are a lion right now, just raise your hand. You think you're a lion. That would be, now if you've taken the disc, that means you're a high D on the, on the melancholy, sanguine, choleric, you'd be the cleric. So how many lions? You're kind of take charge kind of person. Thank you, Jennifer Miller, for being honest, all right? <laughs> So some of you just kind of inherently know, yeah, I'm kind of that person, all right? How many of you think that you're more like the otter, you know, the playful kind, let's, you know, let's just have some fun, all right? Girls just want to have fun. Now, some of you raise your hand twice because you're a lion and otter, and that's exactly who I am. I've got this kind of dual personality, and when my kids were growing up, they kind of wanted to know which one woke up on Saturday morning, right? (laughs) If the lion woke up on Saturday morning, it was not a good day for the kids, right? Because that's like we're sweeping the garage, we're getting stuff done, we're organizing, we're cleaning the dreaded bedrooms, you know, all that. But if the otter woke up, it's like donuts, staying in your jammies, watching TV all day, you know, ordering in pizza. It's, life is good, right? And so all of us have these different personalities. Some of you are golden retrievers. How many, just thinking about the, the golden retriever, you think you might be like that. That's that easygoing, you know, my wife's a golden retriever, you know, until you push her too far and then she becomes a Doberman, all right? And so... Um, <laughs> And some of you know that. And then just think about what you think the beaver is, right? Think they're the beaver. You're that really detailed person, and you can kind of do, do those lists. You know, the beavers get great joy in life by just scratching something off the to-do list, you know? Or they research, you know, cars, and then they get the best deal. Or, or sometimes beavers just like the predictable. I know uh, one of my friends has bought three of these same exact cars. We play golf together. He knows what he wants. He orders it, and, you know, he drives it for 10, 12, 15 years, then orders another one. So we know that personality affects our lives. So the bottom line in personalities that relates to the church and ministry, there are two areas. One is how your personality reflects or affects how you relate to others, right? Now, I want to just give you some continuums, and you can kind of just write down the one word that describes you, all right? So are you extroverted and outgoing? Kind of that's one end of the continuum. Are you an introvert and more reserved, right? Extrovert or introvert, all right? Now, I'm not going to make you vote every time. I'm extrovert, introvert, because introvert would not ever even raise their hand, all right? So, but think about that just in the Bible. I'll try to give you some biblical examples. Who's an extrovert in the Bible? I think Peter. 
Peter's that extrovert, right? He's the disciple with the foot-shaped mouth, right? Peter was kind of that guy. Um, in our family, my son, John Daniel, God bless his soul, he is that extrovert. There's never been a, a thought that didn't come out of his mouth at appropriate and inappropriate times, and maybe you have a child like that. When you blow up a balloon, all right, this represents the extrovert. You blow up the balloon, and it just goes everywhere, all right? Not very much control there. Now, the, the other side of that expressive talker or extrovert uh, is that quiet thinker. And in the, pro I think Jeremiah the prophet, and some called him the pouting prophet. He was a little more introverted. Now, if you had his test, I think you'd be depressed too, but that's a whole other story if we ever study Jeremiah. So we got extrovert, introvert, okay? Outgoing, uh, reserved. How about this? No one thinks of these two extremes. How about cooperative or competitive? Cooperative or competitive? You say, wait, you know, I'm not saying combative, I'm saying competitive. The cooperative person is, you know, you, you, you go like this. You go, I just wish I wasn't such a pushover. I wish I, or the other person is, man, I wish I didn't take everything so seriously. Everything's a competition. Now, I play golf, and I would say that in my life that I'm a bit competitive. That would be an understatement. A racquetball, I'm a bit competitive. It is embarrassing to me when I play a 70-year-old man by the name of Francis Flory that he mops me up on the racquetball court, and I get like two points. I just had that because I see the Flores there. there you know, your granddad, your granddad I, I want to check his birth certificate. I'm really not sure that he's 70 because he's unbelievable, and I get very competitive. But then, and I think about that, I should not hit the old man with the racquetball. That would not be nice in your competitive nature, and he just mops up on me. So there is one last bastion of competitiveness that I've never lost to until yesterday. My son has never beat me in golf, ever, until yesterday. And this is a very exciting, it's a very difficult day because you want the best for your kid, but no, that's like losing arm wrestling to your kid when he was 14. You know, that's just embarrassing, right? Well, it's not that he just beat me. Any of you on Facebook, he had to post the score on Facebook and put the big 9-0 and... And then, he, and then he kind of pointed to the 93 that he beat me by. And the worst part is I have a church parishioner there that watched this humiliation. I'm very competitive. I'm very competitive. Then we have like creatives. How many of you are creative versus adaptive, all right? So when you think about that, and by the way, when you're thinking about all these things, remember what undergirds your personality is. If you believe Psalm 139, it says you were fearfully and what? wonderfully made. So it doesn't really matter which you are, just so you're comfortable with who you are. So how about creative versus adaptive? Um, does have, you know, here's for some of you, this is, uh, this is your worst nightmare. Having to come up with something new, like a talk or a new recipe or a new business idea, that just stresses you out. If you, if you don't have a sample or an example, you got like, I got to invent this, right? Um, so would you prefer to just like do your own thing and be that kind of creative genius? Or do you want to do something, you know, see someone else's design first? You want like, you want a decorating houses. You like look through all the magazines like that, like that, and you kind of take all those best ideas and put them together. Or at Oaks Christian, we have to have these family guidelines for our international students. So do you just write your own guidelines? Or do you, you know, have to look at someone else's and take the best of uh, ideas before coming up with your own? Um, or maybe another way, do you like taking notes on other people's books or are you just saying, no, I just want to write my own book, right? So creative 
versus adaptive. Now, um, I'm going to embarrass Chad here for a second because this guy is unbelievably creative. And sometimes when I go back to the musician's den back there, (laughs) he's always like inventing music. I mean, he's writing music and he's, and uh, sometimes I sit there and I go, how does he do that? You know, how does that work? He hears whole like songs in his head, you know? Now, when other people hear things in their head, we say other things about them, right? So I'm, the, same the same things apply, right? But there's this creativeness that he has. Now, if I was all bummed out because I'm not so creative when it comes to music, that'd just be a very depressing day. There's a special place for music in my life. It's in the shower by myself singing alone. I get where I fit in the food chain of music. So creative versus adaptive. And then here's a big one. How about logic versus emotion, you know, in terms of your basic wiring? Some of you are very logical. How many of you look at life and you say, that is simple. It's one, two, three, four, and there are the steps. Raise your hand. It's, you, it's pretty cut and dry. You get it, right? How many of you say, the question that defines you is not what I think, but this is how I feel, right? So have you ever had a marital argument with your spouse? With my wife at times, it was over things like, well, help me understand what you were thinking. She goes, that is the wrong question, honey. You should be asking me, what was I feeling? I go, yeah, I get it, but feelings we've been told as men are very volatile. They go up and down. She goes, honey, I know what I know. I think sometimes those feelings are rooted in this Great intuitive sense of connection with the Holy Spirit, by the way. I know sometimes feelings can be, you know, unreliable, but my wife's feelings are tied to this intuition that she has. And if you've ever taken the Myers-Briggs, you know they talk about that intuitive uh, thing. And I remember one time when I was trying to decide between two interns to hire for junior high. I was 23 at the time, and I'm hiring like a 20-year-old junior high intern, right? And uh, there were two candidates, and she had strong feelings about one candidate, and I hired the other one. And the one that I hired lasted six weeks and quit. And I ended up hiring the one that she thought was the right one all along, and I said, what objective criteria did you use to come up with the right answer? She said, honey, I just knew. And that is super frustrating for those of us who tend to be more logical, is we wanna see how did you get to that answer? And sometimes some of you in the body of Christ say, I just know. By the way, when you find someone that you trust and doesn't just say, I know, when they really don't know, because that's also a problem, right? That's a person to latch on to. Because those of you who are logical oftentimes are married to someone who, by the way, the opposite is not illogical. The opposite is more feelings-oriented. Did I get that right? Because I got one more chance to get it right before my wife shows up next hour, all right? Logic versus emotion. Now, the second thing... Our personality affects how we respond to ministry opportunities. And so when you get a chance after the service today to go and take one of these interest surveys and take them home and fill them out, how you relate to ministry opportunities is often affected by your personality type. And you're going to see all these things go, I'm not that, I'm not that, I'm not that, and there might only be one thing. Or maybe you say, none of this is me, but I'm this. I was doing this with my life group the other night, and... They put on there, and then I didn't, I noticed there's nobody, nothing on here that says, I speak a foreign language. I said, we should have put that on there. And they said, yeah, we both speak Spanish. I said, we're going to Mexico. She goes, we're going to Mexico? Yeah, we're going to Mexico. That's my recruiting coming out. And by the end of the evening, 
I think we recruited two more people to Mexico. So how you respond to ministry opportunities often is a reflection of your personality. So let's look at how your personality reflects your opportunity to do ministry. High risk versus low risk, all right? High risk versus low risk. Some people want to challenge, people want, no, just predictable. How many of you like to take risks? Okay, true risk taker. How many of you like to take risks and you do it in the stock market? Ooh, see, then we put our money where our mouth is, right? By the way, when you're younger, you can always take bigger risks. And so um, the question here is, do you want something new or do you want something predictable? So um, I look at our friend Lisa. She works in our office. By the way, Next hour will be nine different people. It's just whoever I see out here. But Lisa does something that is very tedious. She keeps track of stuff and it involves money, accounting, and numbers. And I have found that when there is a discrepancy between my numbers and her numbers, she is always right, all right? And the reason she's right is because she has this ability to do something that is very specific, very specific. Now, I don't know if that's high risk or low risk, but I know that detail and the predictability that she goes through a system of checking and counterbalances works, and it comes up with the right answer. How about this one? People versus projects. How many are more kind of people-oriented, okay? How many are kind of more project-oriented, okay? Um, by the way, Gary, I know that he's a good people person because he couldn't have been in store management for, well, how many, 36 years? If all of his employees hated him, there would be no store to manage, right? But Gary is a project guy. Uh, you know that carpet ball thing over there? That, that's, most of you don't even know about carpet ball, do you? But there's a little activity that happens around the corner, like all your kids go there in between services called carpet ball. Gary made the carpet ball thing. When I was stuck and trying to be in nine places at the same time, I called Gary. Hey, Gary, could you pick up these signs? They're out in Calabasas for our golf tournament. He says, done. Got it done. And so he definitely understands the task and the people part, all right? In the Bible, who are the two classic, who's the classic people person in the New Testament? There are two sisters. Who's the people person? Mary, and who was the project person? Martha. And the problem that project people have with people oriented uh, folks are what? what? Those of you who are into projects, what is your view of the people who are into people? That you, would, you get a little disappointed, I think is the word. You kind of say like, I'd be into people too if I wasn't busy taking care of all the stuff you didn't do, right? <laughs> I, can, I can relax and be with people after all the stuff is done. By the way, I've learned that at home with entertaining our family in the holidays here. I better help out in preparing for the kids to come to our house. How many of you are leaders, and you don't have to, leaders versus followers affects how you look at a ministry opportunity. I find in this church, there are a lot of people who want to do stuff what I've had a hard time is finding who wants to lead stuff. That's sometimes a problem in churches like everyone wants to be leaders, but no one wants to do anything. And we need both in the church. We need people to take charge of an area or project. So let me tell you, I'm looking for a leader, this is our third year, a leader to lead our trip to Mexico. I'll coach, I'll advise you, I'll be there, but I want someone else to be the face of that leadership team going to Mexico, December 27th to 30th, shameless plug. All right, leader versus follower. Some of you like being in charge, others have no problem writing down the assignments. Um, in a crisis, some of you wanna step up and you're gonna solve it. And others, you'd like to call 911 and let someone else solve it. That's not a right or wrong, it's just how you're wired. I wanna suggest to you that the reason Paul and Barnabas didn't quite get along is that they were what? 
They were both leaders, and they were both tigers on the same hill. That doesn't work too well, all right? Um, and that's why I think uh, Paul and Silas ended up being better ministry partners. I think they got that dance down a little better. Paul was definitely a leader. Pa- Silas was more his ministry partner. You know, you have other great partnerships where there's a leader and follower in, throughout history. We have the Lone Ranger and Tonto. Work with me here, folks. Work with me. Come on. I know it's early. Have some coffee here. All right? You got Rogers and Hammerstein. You got Siskel and Ebert, although they were maybe both leaders. They kind of… But we kind of see that leader-follower thing. How about this one? Solo performer versus team player. All right? So you got singles players in tennis, and you got doubles tennis. You got running and track and swimming that tend to be single events other than the relays. And you got sports like football and basketball. Um, The question, do I want to do this by myself or do I want to do it with a team? So this is a little insight into who I am as a pastor. You know, uh, if you've been here any length of time, if you've heard any of my sermons, that immediately preceding when I came here, I was a solo pastor in a small church, completely isolated, and it was was a very difficult experience. I, I hesitate to say miserable because God uses all experiences. But it was hard for me because there was nobody in the office. I'd go to this office and I'd sit alone in my office all day. I would pray to God that someone needed counseling that week, right? So that someone else, I would call guys, hey, where do you work? Downtown LA, I'll meet you for lunch, you know? Um, Because I'm wired to be part of a team. It doesn't have to be a huge team because I came from churches and I thought, I thought I didn't need the big team. I came, the, the, the experience I had before I was in Moore Park was in your Belinda, and the team that I personally managed was about 35 people. And at that point, and it's amazing how God takes you through those experiences, at that point, I was thinking, oh, Lord, if I have to sign one more payment approval or approve one more vacation request or, or, or help solve a fight between children's ministry and youth ministry. By the way, they're never fighting. They always just wanted each other's space, money, and people. But other than that, they, they got along just fine. One more of those, I just don't need that, Lord. And then, like we often do in life, we sw- I swung the pendulum from all of that to a solo pastor. And so if some of you wonder why I have this goofy smile on my face most of the time here, and I'm pretty happy, is this is the embodiment of that middle ground for, for where Cheryl and I in our life. We're, there, we're part of a team. We're not isolated. But it's not such a huge team. I actually know everybody's names, and I think I know everybody's kids' names. I didn't even know who some of my staff in your book, I didn't know their kids' names. There were so many. I didn't even know all the people on our own staff. My goodness, much less knowing who was in the church. And so, solo versus team player. Then variety versus routine. Do you get bored with doing the same things over and over again? Balancing checkbooks, changing diapers, your job, whatever that might be. Or do you prefer like pioneering something new? You want to go be a church planner. You want to be a missionary. You want to invent a new app. You, you want to do something. I was at a church in Minnesota for 14 years. You say, wow, with your need for variety and your team and all that, how did you last at one church for 14 years? It's because my job changed every two years, it seemed like. I started off as a student ministries pastor, and then I became the family pastor, then I became the pastor of Congregational Life, then I was on the preaching team, and things changed. So some of you 
kind of beat yourself up about, I can't stay at anything. I, I need something new. And part of your deal is you want variety. If you want variety, just talk to me. I will help change your ministry every three weeks if that's what it takes. But, you know, some of you want that routine. I don't want surprises. And that's okay, too. That's okay, too. Um, so that's how we look at our personality. And let's go to the last uh, piece of shape, and that is experiences. Someone said, life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. The issue, though, is your experiences in your life shapes your attitude towards ministry. And I want to suggest there are four kinds of experiences that we see in the Bible. The first are spiritual experiences, spiritual experiences. 2 Timothy 2.2 says this, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust those to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. What are those experiences in your life that are spiritual? Your church background. The kind of church you grew up in shapes the way you view church today. And there's rampant research to say that there's a bunch of you in your 40s and 50s who came out of very strict legalistic backgrounds in your church experience, and maybe I should include 60s and 70s, I, but it's that era of the 50s and the 60s that then said, hey, I don't know that I want that. I don't need that. I don't want that for my family. There's others of you who had no church background, no spiritual background in your experience. And, and so you, your life has been shaped, shaped a lot by individuals who spoke into your life. Now, I want to show you a picture up here because it describes those spiritual experiences in my life. Those men all invested in me at some point in my experience. The guy on the far left was our junior high pastor. And I prayed when I was in 14 years old, even though I accepted Christ as a six-year-old, at 14, I had this crisis of faith. I was one of those weird eighth graders who actually thought about, is there a God? Can you lose your salvation? Why is there suffering in the world? Now, some of you are looking at me and go, oh, this explains you, John. Thank you. Thank you very much. I also ordered a file cabinet for, my, for Christmas gift at age 16, and that explains <laughs> other, other behaviors about my hoarding tendencies, maybe. I'm not sure, but I like to keep stuff. Um, so he was the one who prayed with me for this idea that of assurance of salvation that you don't have to ask Christ into your heart over and over again, that's a one-time deal. The guy next to him, the guy with the glasses and the plaid shirt, was a guy that would never have won the most popular high school pastor contest. He worked in a little ministry called Boys Brigade, and it was kind of an all-guys thing, and it was an excuse that for once a month for a bunch of guys to go camping. And we weren't very, you know, creative. We always went to Joshua Tree and did rock climbing or Barton's Flats and some of these local areas here. And he was the guy that taught me how to study the Bible. Now, that kind of went from junior high into high school because this Monday guys-only Bible study. And, you know, he didn't do the crazy, you know, let's do topical things. Like he said, we're going to go through the book of First and Second Samuel. Whoa, but what's in First and Second Samuel? Who do we study in that book? David, right? And that's why I have this lifelong love of studying the life of David because of that guy. The next guy over, <coughs> oh, that's me. Um, the guy next to him was my college pastor and actually did my wedding 36 years ago. Still in touch with him today. And ironically, some of you know that I help churches find pastors and pastors find churches. He hired me two months ago to help them find their family pastor. So 36 years ago, I can't imagine what he thought I was, like this young college guy who's kind of, whatever. 
And 36 years later, we're working together, and he still has an influence on my life. The guy next to him was the youth pastor. Now, again, this is many years later, so he was young and hipper and cooler back in the day. But you know what? He wasn't young and hip and cool. He was that guy that just taught God's Word, loved kids, had a bazillion volunteers because he knew he couldn't reach all different kinds of kids, right? And I'll never forget when I was 16 years old, he looks me right, yeah. And I'm this baseball player who thinks he's going to go sign a contract. Like, yeah, whatever. I was deluded. You know, I, I did not play in baseball in college for one year, but I'm 16, and, and he's looking at me. I mean, he's like, he's got those eyes that just kind of don't look that exterior, you know, fool you. He just looked and bored down into my eyes. He said, John, life is simple in one way. There are only two things that are going to last for eternity. The Word of God and people. What are you going to do with your life? Well, I want to play baseball. He says, then you play baseball to the glory of God. But I love working with kids. Then do it as unto the Lord. And it was a real simple philosophy, but what it did, it shaped my entire life because I realized I got to work with people. And then somewhere along the line, God gave me this love for the Word of God, maybe because he planted the seed that that's what really lasts for eternity. So the last guy out in the picture there is Dave Zering. So I go off to Biola University, having had this great experience as a kid in Bethany Baptist Church in West Covina. And this was a Talbot student that was, you know, several, you know, four or five years ahead of me. He had been through our college ministry before I was in the college ministry. And he was the one who gave me a love for memorizing Scripture and just not reading God's Word, but applying it. So if you go to Bible college or seminary, you get to this place where you're like, oh, been there, done that. I'm just taking this test. I want to get an A and get out of this class. And it's very easy for the Bible to become very rote, very predictable, very boring. And he gave me this fire in my belly that there was something alive and dynamic about God's Word. Don't ever just treat it as a textbook. And it, it carried me for many years when I'd be kind of depressed about studying Hebrew or Greek or church history in seminary and going, why am I doing this? Because he, he repeated this message over and over and that God's Word is alive and sharper than any two-edged sword and that it can change lives. So if you wonder why I'm passionate on one side and I'm just this complete emotional beanbag, it's all their fault. No. It's the, you've missed the message if you hear that. It's because that's the way God's made me. And these people shaped my experience spiritually. Now, what about work? There are work experiences. Ephesians 2.10, we are His workmanship. In Mark chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, we see Jesus going about the shore, right? And Simon and Andrew, and, and they're fishing, and he just says, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. I mean, that's like you working in for, you know, Google or Facebook, and someone says, come on, leave that company, and we're going to go to something that'll change the world. I mean, I don't know how he did it, but Jesus did it because he's God. And I think he recruited them from their, quote, secular jobs. I don't see this secular versus sacred distinction. I believe that God can use you wherever he's planted you, wherever he's planted you. 
It's more about your availability than your ability. Then we see the experiences of ministry. 2 Corinthians 9, 13, because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ. Where have you found favor? Where have you found pleasure in serving God? I've always loved working with kids, children, junior high, high school kids. I've always enjoyed that. There's joy in that. Um, some of you find joy in serving. Some of you do Operation Embrace. Some of you been to Mexico. Some of you worked at Children's Hunger Fund. Some of you work in Awana. Uh, some of you love to sing. Whatever your ministry is, is it something that God is giving you joy in? And then lastly, and this is one I'll spend a little more time on, painful experiences. God uses those to shape you, painful experiences. We know intellectually Romans 8, 28 says all things work together for good, but there's painful experiences. And I'd just say, folks, if you haven't experienced pain, that, that it's inevitable. But misery is an option. You can choose to have the pity party, or you can embrace pain and realize God's going to teach you something. Now, God does that in various ways. For some of you, it's physical pain. I've never been very, I've been blessed. I've never had much physical pain up until the last six weeks. And it's just been debilitating. And some of you who live with chronic physical pain, my heart goes out to you because no one understands what that's like to wake up hurting every single day of your life. But that gives you a sensitivity to a group of people that no one else has any sensitivities towards. And I think that's God uses not only that, but he, why does God use the hard times or the painful experience, not physical, but just stuff in life that's painful and hard? If we raised our hands, every single person in this room can raise their hand about a painful, hard experience that you've gone through without exception, almost everybody in this room. Well, I think there are three reasons why he allows those in your life. Number one, pain shapes your character. James 1, 2 to 4 says this, Consider all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So there's a character shaping that happens in the crucible of pain. Max Lucado, in his book, Shaped by God, describes how God uses difficult experiences to form us. He says, when a blacksmith melts down the old and recasts it as new, it is a disruptive process. But over time, change occurs. What was dull becomes sharpened. What was crooked becomes straight. What was weak becomes strong. And what was useless becomes valuable. Pain shapes your character. Secondly, so we can encourage others. We see that in 2 Corinthians 1.4. The God of all comforts comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. And so God uses those negative experiences in your life, those difficult experiences in life, as a platform for ministry. I don't wish a prodigal kid or son on anybody in this room. But we lived it. We lived it. For six long, hard, hard years. But I've got a platform with people who've been there. Some of you lost a father or a mother at a very young age. You almost had to parent yourself. You have a platform for the orphans of life, so to speak. 
Some of you went through a painful divorce that you did not want. You did not deserve. You didn't do the typical things that get people divorced, and yet you got left holding the bag along with thousands of dollars worth of debt. And you had a choice to be bitter or get better, to allow God to use it or let the circumstance destroy you. But God used that experience to give you a platform. If you may know the, the story of Celebrate Recovery at Saddleback Church, the founder of that ministry is a lay guy who was an alcoholic and got help and realized, I can help others. And out of that, birthed a worldwide ministry of recovery for those in addiction. So God can use our experiences to encourage others. By the way, he takes little stupid things that encourage others too. Like this one, I flunked my driving test as a 16-year-old on my first try on my birthday. Humiliating, I had a date already scheduled that night. <laughs> How do I explain that mama's driving tonight? But not every experience has to be this crazy life-changing experience. Then thirdly, God allows the hard times so I will learn to never trust in myself. Look at this passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves but on God. Wow. So sometimes the difficult things in life is say, hey, I don't have it all wired. I don't have it all put together. I can't trust in my natural abilities or my personality. I've got to trust God through this because I'm not going to rely on myself. So what do we trust in? I think naturally we trust in things that provide security for us. 401ks and retirement plans and investments. How was that working for you in 2008, right? It kind of shook your foundation, didn't it? And so, do we trust our instincts? I don't think so, unless those instincts are completely saturated with God's Word. And when we talk about trust in difficult times, you trust God even when it doesn't make sense to you, when you don't get it. It's easy to trust God when you get it, right? How many times God is doing something you don't quite understand it? Just, would anybody just raise your hands? You, there are times where God's in something and you didn't quite understand what he was trying to do. Would you raise your hands? Nearly all of you should have that, that experience. You go, yeah, I don't quite get that. Why is he allowing that? And then how many of you, weeks, months, maybe years later go, ah, I get it now, right? That's the way God works. And in our economy, we wish he would work quicker, faster, smarter, and on our plan, right? If we want to be honest, we don't want to wait for his plan, make time, simmer in the crock pot of life and wait for him to mature us. Now, you know why I like hanging out with the 242 group? There's, you know, some people work with junior high. There's my group right there. There's four of them right there, all in that row right there. The combined life experience is mind-boggling. And sometimes we just think we're just too busy. I don't have time to listen. Once a month, I hang out with those ladies and a few good men, and we talk and listen and pray. It's a wonderful experience. I recommend it for many of you. 
Now, as we wrap up today, I want to just say a couple things. How did Paul's example, and I, I won't flesh this out, but you can take this shape paradigm, and you can look at biblical characters and see how it takes them through life, right? Paul's example, how did that happen to him? Well, we know in 2 Timothy 1.11 that he was appointed a preacher, a preacher, apostle, and a teacher. There's his spiritual gifts. Then Paul gave God a heart. Look at his passion to preach the gospel in Romans 15.20. Thus I make up my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. The guy was an evangelist. There was his passion. There's his heart. What about his abilities? Acts 18, verses 3 and 4. He goes to see Aquila and Priscilla, and they stayed with him. They had the same trade. They were tent makers. He reasoned in the synagogues, and he tried to persuade, persuade the Greeks and the Jews. And in those two verses, we see the ability that he made tents, and he had these debating skills. He had abilities. What about his personality? Wow. Well, you can, where, where do you want to start? Galatians 1.4 1, or 1.14, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among many people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of his fathers. He's no slouch. This guy's an extroverted preaching machine. He's zealous. He's passionate. He's like a wow. You know, he wears you out just thinking about what his life is like. But he had this compassionate side that most people just kind of overlook. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7. But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother, taking care of her own children. Paul gave various experiences in his life. His conversion experience, rather, rather dramatic, right, on the Damascus Road, Acts 8.1. Then he's converted, in, or he comes to faith and converted on the road in Acts 9. And he spends years studying in Arabia, Galatians chapter 1. Then he has a special vision from God in 2 Corinthians 12. I mean, you just go through his life. There's just experiences. So you see each of those shaped Paul. So the bottom line is this. Why in the world did we do this series? When it's all said and done, I'm wrapping it up. Next week we start the book of Mark. By the way, it is a lot easier to preach a book of the Bible. This is not easy for me. It's like, how do you put this all together and give any biblical context? So thank you, by the way, for being patient with me today, all right? I get it. But why did we do this series? I was saying, Lord, why is this important? And I'll confess to you, I have not always been a big fan of spiritual gifts. Like, I don't always understand all that, but I know that God's made me unique. I know He's given me abilities. I know that I have a personality that lends itself towards this, and that I know that when I do what God wants me to do, I'm happy. So whatever all that means to you, you've got to find that place of, life, of ministry for your life. But I did ask this question, what's the relationship between ministry, because all this kind of leads to go do something for God, right? I mean, when it's all said and done, if you have a spiritual gift and your, and your heart and your, and, and your abilities and, and your personality and those experiences, what is it that God's calling you to do? And I said, there's got to be something more than, and I want to use this term very carefully because we can do this, there's got to be something more than the pastor, meaning me, getting up here and manipulating you or making you feel guilty about what you're not doing. That is not my purpose. What I want for you, like I want for my kids and what I want for anybody who's close to me, is to find that place where God gives you great joy in serving Him. Because if you get great discomfort, anger, frustration, but I'm serving God, I'm working with those three-year-olds, I'm pretty sure that's not where you should be doing ministry. And if you think, yeah, but I, you know, I got to do something. No, 
I'd rather have you do, I don't know, this is going to come back to haunt me. I'd rather have you do nothing if you do it with a bad attitude or a have to or a shoulda or a woulda or coulda. And the balance in life is not saying, I've been there, done that, it's someone else's job to do it now. And as we grow older, to figure out what is that new chapter where God wants to use me. I got a friend, I won't mention his name, but he used to do a lot of stuff at this church, did a lot of high-intensity ministry and organizing and planting stuff and doing stuff and creating stuff and managing stuff. But in this stage of his life, it's more about a one-on-one thing. No woulda, shoulda, couldas. Not have-tos. Not this legalistic mustering it up in your own flesh like I gotta, you know, do this for the kingdom. It's that simple, quiet spirit says, when I do these things, God seems to be at work. There's joy in my life, and there's ministry effectiveness. That's the, that's the key, and I can't tell you what that is for you. But that's why we think this coaching thing is important, so that you don't just check off the box and go, yep, I'm stuck, in do, I'm stuck doing four-year-olds till Jesus comes. Now, I'm pretty much into two-year-olds right now, but only one two-year-old, right? And so I get that. So what's the connection here? I did some research. Do you know that in many, many surveys that when people are plugged into ministry that they enjoy and believe that God's called them to, that their spiritual life and satisfaction goes through the roof? Like 92% of people go, when that's happening, the combination of their spiritual growth and what they're doing creates this wonderful, wonderful experience. 63% indicated that active involvement in ministry was equally significant in their spiritual growth compared to other spiritual disciplines. Interesting. Something about serving God almost rose to the same level as studying God's Word and having a quiet time. Hmm. 58% of those who were not actively ministering to others, but yet we were in the Word, studying God, praying, were either unsatisfied or only somewhat satisfied, satisfied in their level of spiritual growth. So all I'm saying is the, the anecdotal evidence and the hard evidence seems to indicate that studying God's Word isn't enough. Ooh, that sounds heretical. But just studying the Bible and having a quiet time isn't all God's purpose for your life. He wants you to use what you're learning in kingdom service, wherever and however that might be. And so I want to give you the ministry challenge today. You know, I just had my first of two fantasy football drafts. It's football season. I'm reminded of this quote. There are 22 men on the field desperately in need of rest. There are 50,000 of people in the, in the stands desperately in need of exercise, right? <laughs> That's how we start off every football season, remind us of the mantra. They're working, we're watching. They're playing, we're eating, you know, the whole deal. And so I want to suggest this fantasy football ministry challenge. Number one, get off the sidelines, all right? Get off the sidelines. Pick a ministry according to your gifting. I don't care what it is. Pick something. Get in the game. Number two, serve in a ministry that brings you joy. Life is too short to be sucking a dill pickle with a sour face, cranky, complaining, combative, contentious, and crazy and any other C you can come up with, right? Serve, serve with joy, and don't feel bad to say no when you realize that's not ultimately what you're best gifted at. Now, don't say no just because you don't want to move some chairs. We can all move chairs. 
You know, we can all clean the toilets. We can all do something. Now, some of you, by the way, I admit freely, I don't do a lot of things really well when it comes to mechanical things. I look at Gary and some of you guys, you can do stuff. I, 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 don't, I, I can talk and move heavy things. That's my gift. You know, that's what I can do, right? You've got other gifts. So serve in a misery that brings you joy. And then lastly, use your gifts to make a difference. Use your gifts. Make a difference. I'm praying that this year of ministry at, at ABF is going to be fun, joyful, and something that you've never experienced before. Take one of those surveys at the end. Don't fill it out with guilt. There's lots of grace. Pick an area and find where God wants to use you. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. In kind of a lighthearted way, we realize that you've wired us and our personalities are so different. And our experiences are so different. But Lord, allow us to use them to make a difference for eternity. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Lord, that is our prayer, not our wills, but yours be done. We want to wake up. We want to stand up. We want to do those things you've called us to do. And Lord, I thank for this church that with great joy we get to serve together to accomplish your kingdom purposes. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Hey, I know you're interested. Uh, that room out there is decimated. The, the work has begun. The spray paint is on the ground. Thank you to all of those who have been contributing towards making those decisions. Have a great day. In the youth room, if you want to be coached through your spiritual gifts, go ahead and meet with those coaches. Have a great Sunday. Bye-bye.